uh, Rua Church. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, hey, you're good. You're good, man. It wasn't on the recording, so we're all right. Uh, this is your guys' first week here. My name is Andrew Breitenbach. I'm Alexander's uh, older brother. I think the only thing that has changed since the last time I was here is that uh, Z and Max started doing jujitsu. And if you didn't know that, it's probably because it's your first week here. But don't worry, they'll get you before you're out the door and they'll try to convert you uh, to join their cult. Um, the only difference that that means is between Gas City and here, uh, there was no danger for me in Gas City. Uh, if I started talking and Forrest and Tyler disagreed with what I was saying, I could still keep talking. Uh, but if Z and Max start to disagree with what I'm going to say, my life is in real physical danger. So if you guys want to pray for my safety, uh, I would greatly appreciate that. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, I say this every time I'm here, and I'm going to say it till I'm blue in the face. You guys have no idea how lucky you are uh, to be under their leadership. Uh, they are incredibly gifted men of God. They're strong leaders, and they care about this church so much. So you guys should thank God every single day for their leadership and the fact that God has appointed them uh, to shepherd your guys' flock. Um, this week, we're going to be in Romans 15, uh, verses 1 through 7, but we're actually going to specifically be focusing in on verse 4. And then next week, I think Max has the privilege of going through uh, verses 1 through 7 in their entirety. So um, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to read the passage and jump right into it. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you uh, for this day, and I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that we can uh, gather together as a body of believers uh, and open up your holy scriptures and hear you speak to us uh, even today, Lord. And so I pray that uh, as we dive into the word together, that, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, uh, that you would convict people where they need convicting, that you would sanctify people uh, where they need sanctifying, sanctifying uh, and that above all, um, anything that we do and learn and change about our lives because of this message uh, would be for your honor and your glory, Lord. So I pray that you would be with us in this time. In your son's name, amen. So Romans chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 1, I'm just going to jump right in. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So I said in my intro that I'm going to focus specifically on verse 4 this week. And if you're asking yourself, am I really going to talk for the next who knows how long about just this one verse? The answer is absolutely yes, I am. And the reason is because the word scriptures here, if you look at it in its specific context, what Paul is talking about is the Old Testament. The, the New Testament had not been written yet, uh, as we obviously know, because it's included in a book in the New Testament. And Jesus, uh, the early church, and the Apostle Paul would have referred to scriptures when they were talking about the Old Testament. And so that begs the obvious question, which is, well, what do we think about when we think about the Old Testament? What's the first thing that comes to our mind? It seems like a pretty straightforward question, but I would actually present to us that we don't actually have that high a view of the Old Testament. Uh, the pastor of one of the largest evangelical churches in America, last year in an, inter in an interview, whose name I'm not going to say, mentioned 
that he thought Christians needed to unhitch, those are his exact words, our faith from the Old Testament because he said it was no longer relevant for us today. And even though most of us would never actually say this, we do kind of treat the Old Testament like it's a second-tier scripture. I mean, we're not going to go around the room and say this, but how many of us read through the book of Leviticus in the last three months in our quiet time? It's not the first place you go to when you want encouragement and, and daily Bible reading. And most of us, when we think about the Old Testament, we think about it in terms of children's stories and really cool stuff, but when we really want to talk about God and the Gospels and Jesus, where do we go? The, the New Testament. Because for us, Jesus is in the New Testament, and so the New Testament is the better testament. And the Old Testament has law and condemnation, and so we don't really think about that. But that's wrong, because that's not how Paul, Jesus, and the early church viewed the Old Testament. Jesus built his entire ministry, the foundation of everything he did, off of the Old Testament. He used the Old Testament to rebuke the religious leaders, to teach and train up his disciples, and also to talk about the coming kingdom of God that he was fulfilling when he was here on earth. In, in Luke 24, uh, Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two people who are perplexed and they're wondering like, what's next? Because Jesus died and now they don't know where he is. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and in Luke 24, what, what Luke tells us is that Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets and going from there, he interprets to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus starts with Moses, the law, and the prophets, and he shows these two guys everywhere in the, the Old Testament where Jesus is depicted. And then in the book of Acts, Philip leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, starting in Isaiah 53, and then he backtracks to the Old Testament and works his way through. And then Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, opens with this in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And from this framework, from this foundation, Paul is going to back up every truth claim he makes in the book of Romans with a reference to the Old Testament. In Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul talks about how the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, not only for justification, but also for sanctification. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 as the reason why we know this is true. And then Paul's going to talk about our need for justification, how that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that no one is free of this condemnation, Jew or Gentile, and that we're all sinners. And there's a lot of evidence in the Old Testament for him to use here, but Paul spares us and he only picks Isaiah, Psalms, and Proverbs to make his case. And, and going from there, in Romans 3.21, we get the first glimmer of hope. We get the justification of the gospel. And so Paul is clear here that although the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning that we don't have to live up to this standard to be made righteous, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So again, he's quoting from the Psalms and Genesis to make his point. And then in Romans 5-8, through 8, Paul talks about the benefits we get from salvation how we are free from the bondage of sin and death, and we can walk in the victory that Christ has accomplished for us as Christians. Paul quotes here from Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy to make his point. And then when Paul gets to Romans 9, he knows he has to answer the obvious question of, did God remain faithful to Israel? Because the obvious question is, well, if that's what God did for the Gentiles, then he must have failed on his covenant promise to the Jews. 
And the, the obvious answer here is that no, that God is still faithful because he has a chosen remnant within the nation of Israel who he's remained faithful to. And so again, Paul quotes from Genesis, Exodus, multiple prophets, and the Psalms to make his point. And then starting in Romans chapter 12 to where we are now, we talk about the symptoms of a gospel-saturated life. How transformation from the gospel not only affects our relationships with one another in the church, but with those outside the church and also our relationships with governing authorities. And so what Paul is doing here is he's using the Old Testament as the entire argument for why the gospel is sufficient. So if that's how Paul, the early church, and Jesus look at the Old Testament— why isn't that how we look at the Old Testament? And so what I want to do for us today is I want to start with Genesis chapter 1 and kind of work through the Old Testament and give us a clear picture of where Jesus is throughout the entire Old Testament. And I don't just mean like a few prophecies here and there. I mean like every single chapter of every single book has a Christological, Christ-centered theme to it. And we're going to talk about that. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn over to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. While you guys are turning there, I just want to say a couple things. Uh, the first thing is that uh, the order that I'm going to go in is going to be slightly different than the order that your Bibles might have it, because the order of the Bible that Jesus, Paul, and the early church would have used was called the Tanakh. So they didn't add any books. They didn't take away any books. They just had a different order. And so the reason I'm going to go through it in this order is because I think this order does a really good job of highlighting Jesus as the main message of the Old Testament. I'll let you guys know when the order changes a little bit. Uh, the main differences are some of the books are combined, like Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel, and then they rearrange some of the books like Psalms and Proverbs and stuff like that. Uh, additionally, uh, when you guys are reading the Old Testament, uh, you need to know that uh, the heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. That's a Jen Wilkin quote that I love, and I say it time and time again. And the reason this is so important for us is because when we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is telling us truths about God that are the same for us today as Christians. And so uh, picture with me uh, an illustration here. If you were to write a love song about a person who you were married to, uh, for the sake of the illustration, I'm not talking about anyone in particular here, I'll just say the person has blonde hair, uh, blue eyes, and they went to Indiana Wesleyan, Okay. Uh, but when I write this love song to the person, uh, I talk about how I love their red hair, uh, their brown eyes, and the fact that they went to Taylor. And it doesn't take long for us to figure out that this actually isn't a love song about me loving them, that it's a love song of me loving my idea of what I think this person is, and that I actually love the self-constructed image of that person, not actually who that person is. So in the same way, when we create an image of God that is not true to what the Bible says about God, we are not worshiping and loving the God of the Bible. We're worshiping and loving an idol that we have made in our own image, okay? So we need to be very careful about the truths of the Bible that we are extracting about God and remain faithful to that. Uh, one more thing here, and I know I probably don't have to harp on this because Z and Max do a pretty good job of this, but uh, when you read the Old Testament, it's not about you okay? So you're not trying to be a Nehemiah leader. You're not going to be a David slaying your Goliaths. You're not going to be a Daniel standing up to Nebuchadnezzar uh, in the fiery furnace uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, the Bible is a theological text about God. So when you read the Bible, don't insert yourself into the narrative. You read the Bible to learn about God and his sovereign plan for all of humanity. So with that very long introduction, uh, we're going to get started here in Genesis chapter 1, 
uh, verse 1. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 starts with the famous words, in the beginning. Now, most people jump right over these words, and I promise, one more side note, I'm not going to stop every three words because we'll be preaching until Jesus Christ comes back, but this is really important because this sets the launching pad for where we're going to go. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first words of the Bible are in the beginning. And so, uh, show of hands, how many people know what an antonym is? You guys are smart. Most of you should know this. So an antonym, for those of you who don't know, is just the opposite of a word. So if I were to say hot, the opposite of hot would be, it's not a trick question, cold. Or if I were to say day, the opposite of day would be night. Exactly. So just like there are opposite words in English, Hebrew works the same exact way. So the opposite of the, of the phrase in the beginning is in the last days. And so what we're going to do here is because Genesis is not a scientific account, it's highly poetic and it's highly structured, what we're going to do is when we see the phrase in the last days later in the first five books of the Bible in the Torah, we're going to tie it back to this phrase in the beginning and we're going to know that when Moses wrote in the beginning, he had in mind this future prophecy that we're going to see in the last days, okay? So this phrase in the last days is the thesis for what the entire Old Testament is going to be about. And so just keep that in mind. We're not going to get there yet, but just know that there's three occurrences of that opposite word in the last days that we're going to run into. And when we get there, we're going to unpack it and we're going to see what Moses had in mind when he wrote in the beginning. So everyone knows the creation account. God makes man. Uh, Everything is perfect. Uh, We're in the Garden of Eden and things go great until sin enters into the world, right? And so once sin enters into the world, it's not a very long uh, time period before there's this downward spiral and Adam eats from the fruit of the tree and then pretty soon Cain kills his brother Abel and then a couple chapters later it gets so bad that God decides he has to exterminate all of humanity through a flood. Uh, And we find that uh, after the flood that God preserves Noah and his family uh, by grace. There's nothing that Noah does to earn God's favor. That even though God preserves Noah and his family, that Noah sins too. That after the flood, that this sin problem that, that was so bad before the flood is still present after the flood. And so it, it begs us to ask the question that maybe the issue isn't in certain people. Maybe the issue is something in ourselves, that we actually have a sin nature and that it doesn't matter how many people uh, there are on the face of the earth, that we all have this inherent sin nature in ourselves that we can't escape from. And so this sin problem continues to go from bad to worse as we see the, the Tower of Babel where people try to create a tower and make their way up to God. And it's just the, one of the biggest issues of pride that we see in the entire Bible. And then we go from the, the Tower of Babel to Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And it's God's response to the human issue of sin. We see that with Abraham, God sets his affections on Abraham without Abraham doing anything to earn it. And that, that God takes the initiation and that he's actually the one who sustains the covenant with Abraham throughout all of the scriptural narrative. And from Abraham, we see Isaac coming into the picture and Isaac has Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 49, we see this first occurrence of the phrase in the last days. So if you guys want to turn there with me, uh, Genesis chapter 49 uh, verse 1, just to kind of set the scene here. So Jacob and his family are in the nation of Egypt right now. They have just been rescued from the, f- from the, the, the famine. 
because Joseph was in charge in Egypt and he provided for his family. And so Jacob is about to uh, die of old age. And so he's going to bless his sons one last time. And so in Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, it says, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what you shall happen, that, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, I promise you, even though it doesn't translate perfectly in English, the, the, the phrase in the days to come is actually the Hebrew word for in the last days, and it's the exact opposite of in the beginning. So what we should be looking for right now is a prophecy that's going to tell us about what Moses had in mind when he wrote in the beginning. And that prophecy we see in verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So we see in this prophecy, there's a clear depiction of a future king, a lion from the tribe of Judah, who's going to reign one day over all the nations. So this is starting to build this picture of what Moses had in mind in Genesis 1. That when he was writing in the beginning, he had in mind this future king from the tribe of Judah. And then we move from the end of Genesis to the book of Exodus, right? And Exodus starts with the people of Israel in bondage to slavery uh, in Egypt. The problem is, though, that even though God sends Moses to free the people from their slavery to the Egyptians, that as soon as they're out of their bondage to Egypt, we see that that actually wasn't the biggest problem that they had. That they actually had a slavery to sin that was not solved. And that slavery to sin plagued them time and time again. We see this highlighted in Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is central to the Old Testament and really to the Torah for a number of reasons. First, Moses devotes over half the chapters in the first five books of the Bible to Mount Sinai, to the amount of time that the nation of Israel spends there. Secondly, if you were to look at it geographically on a map, Egypt is here, Mount, uh, the promised land is here, and Mount Sinai is literally a geographical barrier on the way of the people of Israel to get from their slavery to Egypt to the promised land that God has promised them. So there is a literal physical barrier between the people receiving that which God has promised them, and the barrier is the law that they can't keep. It sounds kind of like the fact that you and I can't receive eternal life because our slavery to sin and our inability to keep the law that God has given us. And the situation, again, continues to get worse and worse and worse because the people, no matter how hard they try, cannot keep God's holy law. And if you look at it uh, in the structure in which God, uh, Moses writes it, uh, the more the people sin, the more laws God gives them that they have to obey. And it's this cyclical narrative that doesn't stop. And by the time we get to Numbers and Leviticus, we see that uh, God has set aside animal sacrifices, atonement, to pay for the people's sins, that blood has to be spilt in order for their sins to be atoned for. And we also see that someone with a specific genealogical descent is appointed by God to atone for the people's sins on their behalf. Someone from the tribe of Levi. 
almost like someone who atones for our sins on our behalf from the tribe of Judah who spills his blood on our behalf. And then we get to the book of Numbers and Numbers continues to paint this bleak and dismal picture of the nation of Israel in their inability to obey the law. But in Numbers chapter 24, we see the second occurrence of this in the last days prophecy. Numbers chapter 24, verse 14 is where uh, Balaam is going to give us this prophecy. Balaam was a pagan prophet and he had been appointed by a pagan king to curse the nation of Israel. But God in his sovereign plan, in his wisdom, turns this curse into a blessing. And so it ends up being something that man intends for evil, God intends for good. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 14, Balaam says, Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Again, doesn't translate perfectly in English. Bless you, Tara. But I promise you, this is the exact opposite of the phrase in the beginning. So our radars are going off right now. We've seen this phrase in the last days. There's a narrative. There's the phrase. Now we're looking for the prophecy. What's the prophecy? It's in verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So we see again here this future ruler from Jacob who's going to have the scepter and rule over all nations, and it literally says in verse 19, one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So we've taken that, we've added it to our picture of this lion king from the tribe of Judah. And we know now that this is also what Moses has in mind when he writes in the beginning in Genesis 1, this future ruler, this future king. And then we, we leave the book of Numbers and we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally just means second law. All it is is Moses retelling the people of Israel the fact that they have been disobedient time and time again to God. And that no matter how hard they try, they're not going to be able to obey. And so Moses gives them a list of curses if they will disobey, which he says they will, and a list of blessings if they will obey, which he says they won't. And so in Deuteronomy 31, 29, uh, we actually see the third occurrence of this prophecy in the last days. So Deuteronomy 31, 29, it comes on the heel of Moses talking about the blessings and the curses of the nation of Israel. And it says, In the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So this is the third time we've seen this occurrence. Anytime in the Bible something occurs three times, it's like drawing attention to it, right? It's the perfect fulfillment of it. In the book of Revelation, when it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, it's talking about how God is the perfect fulfillment of what it means to be holy. So here, third time this prophecy occurs, like radar should be going off right now. We want to know what Moses is saying here. And then in the next two chapters, in 32 and 33, he's going to build upon this picture of a future lion king from the tribe of Judah who's going to reign one day over all the nations. So what we have done now is we have seen three separate times that Moses has in mind this future ruler when he says this prophecy. And what we're going to do is we're going to tie that back to Genesis 1.1, meaning that when Moses wrote in the beginning, he had in mind a future lion king from the tribe of Judah who would run one day rule over all the nations. That this is so big. 
before sin enters onto the scene, before creation, before anything else happens, Moses puts the preeminence of Christ as the very first words of the Bible. Just like any paper you've ever written, the very first thing you do is you give the thesis. You give the reason for why you're writing the book. Moses' thesis for writing the Bible, for writing the Old Testament, is this future king, Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, who's going to reign one day. And that's the starting point. That's the place where he begins the entire narrative of the Old Testament. So that is called the the Torah. That is called the law. And now we're going to go into the prophets. So this is where the order shifts just a little bit. So the the prophets starts with Joshua and Judges. Uh, So some books get skipped here. But Joshua and Judges, really all they do is they continue to paint the picture of Israel's inability to obey God. I mean, in in Judges, God sends judge time and time again. The people disobey. God sends judgment upon them. The people ask God for a judge to deliver them. God sends them the judge, and the people do what? They, They fall into sin again and again and again. It happens 12 times in the book of Judges. And so the people think to themselves, well, maybe it's, not the, maybe it's not us. Maybe it's the judges. So God, why don't you send us a king? So God says, well, I am your king. I am your ruler who sits seated above, high above every other earthly king. And they say, well, we want an earthly king just like all of our other neighbors. So God says, fine, I'll send you guys an earthly king. And he sends them Saul. Saul was a head taller than every other man in Israel, probably like Max. That's kind of how I like to picture him. Uh, he was incredibly handsome and good looking, and he was skilled in combat. So just think of Max when you think of Saul. But the problem with Saul was, and this is not a, this is not a shade at Max, the problem with Saul was he was unwilling to obey God. That, that Saul was set on his own uh, desires and his own actions. And when God commanded Saul to do certain things to bring God glory, Saul chose to bring himself glory. And so God rips the kingdom from Saul's hands and he gives it to David. And the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. Now what that doesn't mean is that God put his affections on David because David did the right things in the eyes of the Lord. What it means is that David was a man after whom God had set his own heart. That before David did anything right or wrong, God had put his grace and his love and affections upon him. So that this is really good news for us, just working off the assumption, the assumption that all of us are sinners, by the way, that if we sin, that God does not remove his grace from us, that he does not remove his mercy from us. Because God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, and a few chapters later, David falls into sin with Bathsheba. And God doesn't nullify the covenant then. He remains faithful to the promise that he made David. And 2 Samuel 7, the, the Davidic covenant, is probably the highlight of the prophets. That God says he's established David's throne forever and that through David's throne, he's going to bring the blessings of God to all the nations and that David's throne will last forever. But like I said, David falls into sin with Bathsheba and he kills Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And so God uh, takes David's kingdom away from him and it kind of falls into turmoil uh, from there. And so after David's kingdom falls into turmoil, God still remains faithful and he appoints Solomon to the throne. Solomon was the illegitimate son of David, who was the youngest of David's kids. And so he was the least likely and least qualified to sit on the throne. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but God has a habit of choosing the least likely and the least qualified people to serve his purposes so that he can be most glorified and his power most displayed. 
And so God remains faithful to Solomon through the Davidic covenant. Solomon builds God's temple and it's glorious and all of Israel is blessed like Tara read today in the reading from 2 Kings. But Solomon disobeys. Solomon disobeys. And he marries foreign women and these foreign women bring in foreign gods and idols and they start to worship other gods besides Yahweh, the one true God. And because they start to worship foreign gods, the kingdom of Israel goes from bad to just absolute destruction. And they start this downward spiral that eventually leads to their taking over, being taken over by first the Assyrians uh, for the northern kingdom and the, the nation of Babylon for the southern kingdom. And so that's really the picture that we find ourselves in when we get to books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. That the situation has gone from bad to completely hopeless. But Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the other prophets paint a different picture. They say that although God will judge sin and he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished, there is hope. But the hope isn't in us. It's in this future king who's going to restore his kingdom one day, who's going to remain faithful to his covenant promises. And we see that the prophets don't point to the Mosaic covenant, to the ability to follow the law as the proof of God's faithfulness. They point to the Davidic covenant and the Abraham covenant that God made with Abraham as the reason why God will remain faithful. And then we get to uh, the 12. Uh, This is where the order again is a little bit different. The 12 basically is the combination of books like Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. In the the Hebrew Bible, they combined all of those books into one one big one because a lot of them are small. And all the 12 does is it continues this theme of this future king who's going to restore his kingdom one day in the last days is actually the phrase that they use. But even though he's going to establish his kingdom, God's still going to punish sin and be deemed holy and just. And so after we finish the prophets, we're going to go to the writings. And the order here is a lot different than the English Bible, so I'll kind of walk us through it here. The writings begins with the book of Ruth. So we've just gone from the prophets to the book of Ruth. And the reason this is important is because Ruth is set during the time of the judges. So after the nation of Israel has been in exile in Babylon and Assyria, we go to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy of David from someone who wasn't from the nation of Israel. So the book of Ruth is there to remind the people of Israel of the Davidic covenant that God made with David, that he is going to remain faithful to his chosen people. And then from the book of Ruth, we go to the Psalms. And most of us read the Psalms today for wisdom and encouragement. And if we don't know what book of the Bible to read, you go to the Psalms or Proverbs, right? But I would actually present to you that the reason the Psalms are there in the Hebrew Bible is to give us a heavy dose of David, David, and some more of David. Because the Psalms was written almost entirely by David. And what the Psalms does is it highlights for us the fact that David is the central theme of the Davidic covenant and that David points forward to one who will to someone who will one day rule in his place, a greater David, someone who will fulfill in all the ways that he was able to fulfill God's laws. And then we go from the Psalms to Song of Solomon and Lamentations. And again, language of a future king who's going to rule one day and he's going to punish the guilty and he's going to uphold his faithful people. Then we get to the book of Daniel. Daniel is very apocalyptic, but Daniel talks about the son of man who's going to come. And the son of man's going to come in the last days, and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. Then we go from Daniel to Esther, and we go from Esther to Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we close the Old Testament out with the book of Chronicles. 
And you might be wondering, well, why would we close the Old Testament with the book of Chronicles? The book of Chronicles basically combines Samuel and Kings, but it highlights David. It highlights David's rise to the throne, his reign as a king, and it highlights the Davidic covenant and the promises that God has made with David. So from the time that God has made his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 to the end of the Hebrew Old Testament, we see that this Davidic covenant is the overarching theme. And then we turn our Bible over a few pages to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. And this is where stuff starts to get really cool. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. I fact-checked myself this morning because someone asked me a question about this in the earlier service, so this is all correct. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David in Matthew chapter 1, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. Now, what I said earlier was anytime something occurs three times, it means it's the perfect fulfillment of whatever the author's trying to communicate. But there's actually a deeper meaning here in this text as well. So in English, um, you, you guys have probably done this before. If the letter A has a numerical value of one assigned to it and B has numerical value of two assigned to it, C, three, are you guys kind of tracking with me with that? So if you assign, Max, you'll look a little confused there. So if you assign a numerical value to each letter of the alphabet, so like A is the first one, so it's one, B is two, C is three. So if you write something out like the name David, if you write David out in Hebrew, the numerical value of David is 14. So again, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. It occurs three times, David, 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 culminating in the fact that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that God made in 2 Samuel 7. Turn over a few more pages to Acts chapter 2 in the book of, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And we see here Joel's prophecy coming to fruition. We see that we are actually living in the last days right now because God has poured out his spirit on his people, that we are made alive in Christ and that we're not under the condemnation of the old covenant, that we're walking in a new covenant. And my favorite one, I started yelling in the car when I was talking to Alexander about this, Revelation 5.5. 5 end of the New Testament. This is the coolest one here. Revelation 5.5. 5. There is a lion king from the tribe of Judah who is worthy to break open the seal, and he's the lamb who was slain from before the foundations of the world. So Revelation 5.5, 5, last book of the Bible, talks about this lion king who is reigning above, uh, above us in heaven, who's seated above, high and lifted up. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, Moses is talking about the lion king from the tribe of Judah who's going to reign one day. The very first words of the Bible and the very end of the Bible talk about this lion king who is Jesus. In other words, from start to finish and everything in between, the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. He's the through line that connects all of it. And so with that 10,000 foot overview of the Old Testament, Romans 15.4, let's see what Paul has for us. First, Paul says that the scriptures are useful for instruction. That's what he says in Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So the word instruction here is better translated as teaching about doctrine. And I know if you rolled your eyes that here we're talking about doctrine and theology again, remember, the heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. The Old Testament is sufficient to teach us about God's nature and his character because God does not change. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Meaning that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God that we worshiped uh, for saving the nation of Israel is the God that we worship for saving us from our sin. And we can look to God's character and his nature as gospel truths in the Old Testament and still apply them today. Now, you might be wondering, well, that's great because that tells us about God. But I thought your whole sermon was about how Jesus is the whole point of the Old Testament. Just wait. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Where is the gospel picture in every single book of the Old Testament? In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb who takes away our punishment. In Leviticus, he's the high priest who intercedes for us. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent, the cloud by day and the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is our city of refuge. In Joshua, he's the scarlet thread hanging out of Rahab's window. In Judges, Jesus is our perfect judge. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he's the greater David. In 1st and 2nd Kings, he's our prophet, priest, and king. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Jesus is the glorious temple. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of all that is broken. In Esther, Jesus is Mordecai sitting faithfully at the gate. In Job, he's the day spring from on high. In the book of Psalms, he is the good shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the wisdom of God. In Song of Solomon, he's the rose of Sharon, our beautiful bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant, the shoot from Jesse's stump. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet who weeps with those who weep. In Ezekiel, he's the one who brings the valley of dry bones to life. In Daniel, he's the son of man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's our lover who is forever faithful. In Joel, he's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, Jesus is a mighty savior. In Jonah, he's the ultimate foreign missionary. In Micah, he's our messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's a righteous avenger. In Habakkuk, he's a great evangelist. In Zephaniah, he's the restorer of the chosen remnant. In Haggai, he's a cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pure son. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. That's where Jesus is in the Old Testament. Second, Paul says we get endurance and encouragement from the Old Testament. The idea here is more than simple encouragement. It talks about waiting with confidence and patience for what we know. It's more than just a simple pat on the back to get us through the day. And the reason that we have encouragement by looking at the Old Testament is because God is faithful to his covenant promises. That there is nothing that God has ever said that hasn't come to pass. Just look at the story of Israel. They are unfaithful as unfaithful can be. And then look at us. We are as unfaithful as unfaithful can be. And if God didn't forsake Israel, he's not going to forsake us. This means that no matter how many times we fail, that we can still look to the cross. We can still look to Christ and we can find assurance of our salvation. That he who began a work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And lastly, we get hope from the Old Testament. So here what Paul is talking about is knowing that we can fully expect things to one day come to pass and that we don't have to wonder if it's going to happen. As Christians, we have the witness of the scriptures, and we have the historical testimony of the fact that Jesus Christ came, lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, died the death that we deserved, and then rose again three days later. But he's seated on high. He's reigning right now. And so you and I don't have to wonder if he's going to come back. We're in the already, not yet. Jesus has already beat uh, sin and death. He's already conquered the grave. And all he's going to do one day is establish his throne. We don't have to wonder if it's going to happen. We just need to wonder when. 
So this hope that we have gives us confidence and assurance in the, the trials that we go through, in the, in the sufferings that we go through, because we know that no matter how bad this life gets, we hope in something greater. We hope in an eternal kingdom who will be reigned by the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you might be wondering, well, what's the, what's the application, right? It's pretty straightforward. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. Jesus is talking to the, the religious leaders, and they're asking him all these questions. And the religious leaders would have had the Old Testament completely memorized. That you, as a Jew, you could not have gone to a, a higher place in society and a higher knowledge of the Old Testament than being a religious leader. So they, they were as knowledgeable as knowledgeable could be about the Old Testament. But look what Jesus says to them in John 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The religious leaders understood the entire Old Testament. They had it memorized. They checked off all the boxes. They knew all the stories. They knew the order of how everything went. But they missed the whole point. They missed Jesus. Don't read the Old Testament. Don't read the Bible and miss Jesus. He's the whole point from start to finish and everything in between. The whole point of the Bible is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the fact that you are faithful uh, to your people, that no matter how many times we fail and come short, uh, that you always uphold your end of the deal. Uh, that your covenants will always come to pass, Father God. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go about this week, uh, whether it's work or class or anything like that, I pray that we would seek to put you first in all those ways, Father God, in all those different areas of our lives, that we would exalt you first and foremost to bring your name glory. And God, I pray that as we read the, the Old Testament scriptures, that we would look for you, and not just look for you so that we can know academically that you're there, but that we can look for you and know that deeply, intimately know that you are there, Father God, and that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the entire scripture, the entire witness of the Holy Bible points to you, Father God. And so, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your scriptures. And I thank you for the fact that you came and died and stood in our place and that you are seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.